0: To uh, The Prof and The Hack with me, I'm Hugh Remington, I'm The Hack, and uh, The Professor is indeed The Professor. Peter G'day <laughs> <laughs> How are
1: you?
0: Network 10's uh, political editor. It's gone a bit weird, hasn't it, for, for Bill Shorten?
1: It all changed a little bit for him, didn't it? He was riding high in the early days of the campaign and obviously had the momentum for years before coming into the election campaign with being ahead in the polls and whatnot, and then the Peter Dutton fiasco that we've talked about before, but... The week, the first week of the campaign, which started well for him, boy, it hasn't ended well because he's been under the pump
0: for the last few days. I get the feeling it all started with that uh, intense questioning from Ten's very own Jonathan Lee when he wanted to know what was going to be the cost to the economy of Labor's emissions reductions uh, targets, and he couldn't get an answer.
1: It was a really honest moment from a journalist. As you say, my colleague out of Canberra in the Bureau there, Jonathan Lee, he... It's his first campaign for Channel 10 on the road, as I understand it, and he suffered from frustration and he did a great job of not being, if you like, bullied or intimidated out of continuing to ask that question over and over again because if anyone saw the footage of it or heard the audio, certainly the footage is better, you can see that Bill Shorten is trying to, albeit politely, I have to say, move on and not answer the question. And rather than just copying that, uh, Jono kept right at it and then it became a real symbol at that moment in time in the campaign of the unwillingness of Bill Shorten to answer some pretty probing questions. And Liberals have for a long time before the start of the campaign complained that the opposition doesn't get enough scrutiny and so on. Well, the answer to that has always been that's because they're the opposition, you're the government, you know, you're naturally held to account to a higher standard because you are in power now. That changes during an election campaign. And I got the impression that Bill Shorten, who's normally so match fit and out-campaigned Malcolm Turnbull, even though he didn't ultimately win the election in 2016, he looked match unfit uh, both in that moment and in the wake of it, in the sort of day or two that followed and it's exposed at least a brittleness to him and to Labor's costings at this moment in time. But we should say, and we'll get to this, that the government have got similar problems, um, but they haven't had a similar moment.
0: Uh, Yeah, because I really want to stick with with Shorten there just for a second because I thought he looked appallingly arrogant. He used a device that they use in question time, which is to take some sort of sub-element of a question... And use that as a justification to blather on about that unrelated subject rather than the core question. And Jonathan Lee, to his credit, called him out on it. Kept on going it, and it's not an insubstantial question. Labor has a higher emissions reductions target. It makes a virtue of that. What is the cost of that to the economy? He wouldn't even come close to addressing
1: the question. Oh, it was unbelievable. I mean, I did my almost my entire package on it that very night because he had two minutes or thereabouts to answer the question and he blathered on about health and other things. They're not unimportant, but they're nothing to do with what Jonathan Lee asked him. And And the
0: weird thing about this is that one of the great weaknesses for the Liberal Party even more than the National Party, but it's a big problem in the National Party, but for the Liberal Party, is that they're perceived to have dragged their feet on climate change. They've made a dog's breakfast of any kind of policy on climate change, and that's been very clever to certain elements of their supporter base. But for other elements of the natural Liberal Party supporter base, it is starting to cost them severely. It costs them in the Wentworth mm-hmm. by-election. It is what makes one of the reasons why Tony Abbott is vulnerable in Warringah uh, because of his positions on climate change. Josh this, Frydenberg. This should be the countryside in which a, a question basically on climate change should be an opportunity for Bill Short.
1: Except, though, Hugh, I, I agree it, it should be, but except the virtue... Of Bill Shorten and climate change is, if you like, uh, what they put out there as, as their goal and their interest. You know, The fact that they show a belief in it and a willingness to try to tackle it and do something about it. That's the virtue. The vice is the bucks. How mm. much is it going to cost? How realistic is what you're looking at doing in terms of the economy? That's the question that Jonathan Lee was zeroing in on and that's where Bill Shorten found himself getting stumped because he wants to talk about all the virtue. We care. Liberals don't. We believe. Liberals don't. But then when you get down to the brass tacks of cash, that's where he was getting unpicked and didn't want to answer the question. We should say he had a go at answering it the next day, Uh, the exchange between him and Jonathan then, a number of questions, this time an attempt to answer them. But he was answering them on topic as opposed to answering the specifics of the question. Again, the cost, the numbers, the detail.
0: Absolutely. It's like I've given you a response to your question not an answer to the question, <laughs> yeah, so I've given true. you something up there. Uh, 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 just before we leave the Jonathan, the first Jonathan Lee encounter with Bill Shorten, it's tactically dangerous to do that to a journalist, to make it so obvious you're not going to answer a particular specific reasonable question. Because every other journo, they've gone there with other questions they want to ask, but every other journo registers that and goes, oh, that's interesting. He doesn't want to answer that question. It kind of guarantees that somewhere down the track, other journos start to pile up and go, now, why won't you answer this question? So it doesn't become just Mm. one journo. And then if you haven't answered the question, particularly when these reporters are with them every day, you go that question is going to circle around until someone gets an answer out of it.
1: And the papers are going to borrow into it, there's going to be more of a policy focus on it. The commentators and the opinionistas are going to jump in there as well. So it has a snowball
0: effect. and and the, when when he does come to answer the question, his his quest, his answer to it is, as you say, a, a response rather than an actual answer. The question was, I think what is that, going to the be the... the
1: co- you were the one that put it that eloquently. I, I, <laughs> I, I spent a couple of minutes saying that <laughs> sentence.
0: So, so John O'Leary gets another chance, and this time Shorten's smart enough not to brush him off. So he knows he's going to have to answer this question. He knows the question's going to come back up again. The question remains the same. What is fundamentally the cost, the economic cost of your emissions reductions target? And in Shorten's answer, and again, it took a little bit of wheedling out, he says, I don't accept the characterization that it is a cost. So at his fundamental level, he doesn't come up with a dollar cost. He mm. says he doesn't. He says the economy will keep growing. Well, the economy will keep growing, you know, unless something utterly catastrophic happens to the world. The economy will keep growing, uh, but then he says he doesn't think this will be a cost. Well, I don't think course. anyone buys that.
1: Oh, look, he, what he's trying to do there is is have a definitional issue over what cost means. You know, it might be an economic cost in in one sense, but. I don't accept it's a cost because it's a value that we need for the value to the environment and the... the incalculable benefits of addressing climate change to the economy that come indirectly as a result of there being less damage and whatever else it might be. Mm. So he's trying to, if you like, play a little bit of funny buggers. He's being
0: like Bill uh, Clinton with the famous it depends on what the meaning of is is in one of his famous (laughs) answers. You know, you're dancing on the head of a pin. Exactly. And the weird thing about it is why didn't he just come out and say, look, the costs are likely to be this, uh, relative to the government's uh, emissions reduction targets, the lower ones of 26 to 28%, compared with 45%, which is Labor's. Um, and he makes the case now that the costs are no different because Labor, unlike the coalition, will allow international credits to be bought, which means the cost to the Australian economy will be no different, he argues, between the 45% he's offering and the 26 to 28%. It's getting very technical here. But what he's getting wedged between, of course,
1: is wanting to be seen to be having stronger action on climate change versus, if you like, having nice accountancy and bookkeeping that allow him to do more because of those international credits. It's a, it's a, it's a really interesting yeah. line that he's trying to walk. The other thing we should note is, you know, their, their target, their 45% reduction target um, by, I think, 2030, isn't it? This... this this is only a target. It's really interesting. Labor, when they talk to their left flank, they want to make a virtue of it, you know, 45% or, you know, here we come, you know, it's, it's a big, big target, much bigger than the government's. But then when they talk to the right or if they sort of background you, if you're burrowing into that a little bit, they say, well, you know, it's only a target. You know, we may not get there.
0: It's not... Iron-clad. You're not saying they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth, are you, Peter? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> yeah. And what he... What, in fact, Chris Bowen made the argument more than Shorten did that the cost of not doing action is monumental and we have to be part of an international effort. But it was lost because Bill Shorten was so busy hashing it up. And, of course, that whole business, would he answer the question on that issue was only one of his problems because he also got caught up in the difficulty over taxes on superannuation. Talk us through that.
1: Well, that was interesting because he... Well, the government, uh, we should probably start there, was in front of a group of senior Australians that the Prime Minister had a meeting and he made the declaration that there'll be no new taxes on super under us. Got a big cheer in the town hall meeting at the time and it was then asked... Of Bill Shorten, essentially whether he would match that, whether he could make the same commitment, and he—and this goes to I think to that perceived arrogance that he's had a little bit as a front runner of late that you mentioned earlier. Uh, he very quickly just decided to kill that off and say, "Yep, no new taxes under us either." The problem being that that then becomes another definitional issue because there are what you would call higher taxes at least under the current Labor policy. Now they haven't hidden this policy to be fair to them. This has been their super policy for quite some time and it avoids, uh, rather it includes shutting down a number of concessions that exist under coalition policy versus how Labor would look to tinker with super, which as a result delivers the taxman more tax revenue because those concessions aren't in play. Now That left him, if you like, contradicting himself. He then got into a whole muddle about he misunderstood the question, he acknowledged he misspoke there then became this sort of esoteric debate about what a new tax is versus a closing of a loophole or of a concession, uh, the revenue... Or reducing or reducing, the,
0: or reducing the, the, the rate at which it comes in so it captures more people. Absolutely. Most people feel that that is a tax grab.
1: Well, it is. I mean, it,
0: if, if one thing... I mean, look,
1: both sides do this. You know, the government, when they were introducing their super reforms, were refusing to acknowledge that these were new taxes or higher taxes. They were describing it the same way Labor now is when it tries to get away from that three-letter word that is such a, a scary feature of politics. But it's it, it's an interesting debate because, look, we're not going to get into this, but other than <laughs> the gotcha moments and the stumbles and all the politicking of the campaign, what does and doesn't happen in super is actually a really important space. Um, it's important politically because the Liberal Party or the government, the coalition, acted on super reform when a lot of people internally didn't think they should. They worried that it hit their base, particularly older Australians. But then the Labor Party thinks, or a lot within the Labor Party as opposed to their their necessary policy, they think that that we need to go further because there is an intergenerational ripoff with the amount of concessions that exist for the retiring baby boomers and so on. Um, But, of course, politically, they're a huge voting cohort. You can't go after them.
0: And also people who are at or approaching retirement, they see it in very, very deep personal terms. This is going to be... What they, they they know they can't go out and get a better job, they can't earn anything more. So that's why super becomes so emotional for people who are at or close to that time, because when they see someone coming after them to take more of it, they see that as a direct steal from their own retirement, which it, which
1: I, I can understand that. I mean, yeah. the, one of the
0: problems here is that the superannuation,
1: in my view, is a great idea. for savings, creating, in theory, the ability of people to independently provide for themselves in retirement, particularly with an ageing of the population. Greater security in old you know, age.
0: What's wrong with all that? All the rest of it.
1: You know, and then also throwing the underlying economic benefits to the economy of having these huge pools of super funds which prevent um, global catastrophes or economic downturns becoming too risky with flight of capital because the super money has to sit somewhere, right? So it actually helps stabilise the economy as well. Massive advantages all over the place. The problem? Paul Keating, full hats off to him for introducing it. The problem is the way it was introduced. There was was tax on the way in and no tax on the way out. In other words, you get a bit of a hit when you save for your super, but when you actually then draw on it over the course of an entire lifetime of retirement you pay, and this has changed slightly now, for 15% payment above certain amounts, but you pay no tax on that income. I'm not talking about the principal. You can have millions of dollars as your principal. That obviously doesn't get taxed no matter what. I'm talking about the interest you draw off that principal. The way it was designed means that for years, people paid zero tax on that income. I think a lot of younger Australians didn't realise that. You paid zero tax. So you could have, artificial example... $10 Ten million dollars in super, draw one million dollars a year, and pay zero tax on that one million, and obviously also no tax on the original principle of ten million. That's unsustainable in an ageing population when that voting cohort is getting older, is costing more in terms of healthcare and all the rest of it.
0: There's not many with ten million in their super.
1: But even so, let's let's reduce it. Uh, let's talk about what what it is now. A couple can have three point two million dollars in their super, and they pay no tax on any earnings from that. So even if you just earn, well, let's not even say 10%, let's say 5%, if you get one hundred and sixty dollars every year of your $3.2 million super as a couple, that one hundred and sixty grand you pay zero tax on it and you only pay 15% tax on anything above that $160,000. is insanely low tax. Now, I get that older Australians say, well, it's my money, I save for it. Well, what about this? What about the young couple who are saving to try to buy their first home and let's say they're just a pair of people earning eighty grand each, anything that they get by way of interest earned in the account, exactly the same principle as super, they pay $0.32 in the dollar tax on that interest as they try to save for their home. This is why there's a massive intergenerational divide between older Australians who actually feel ripped off with suddenly paying a little bit of tax on their super versus younger Australians that say, well, hang on, you still pay four-fifths of nothing on most of what you earn. Uh, How can you take that view? I fall into that latter category because I take the view that it's unsustainable in an ageing population to not have higher rates of tax, but I don't know how to fix it, Hugh, because the best way to fix it is to turn around and say you pay lots more tax on the way out, but you don't pay that much on the way in but then to reverse it all around in a budgetary sense is almost impossible. It's like trying to unscramble an egg.
0: Then you get to how much Labor wants to take out. There's all this, you know, the government saying that these super tax grab will be $34 billion over 10 years, et cetera, and Labor's always said that's an exaggerated figure. But then from Chris Bowen in the same news conference where uh, Bill Shorten was trying to clarify exactly what he meant about the cost of the emissions reduction scheme and everything else, he said it would bring back to the budget... $30 billion, quote, in the medium term. Very close to what the government was saying. Very close to what the government's saying. We don't know what the medium term is precisely, but there's no escaping it. It is a big tax grab, and doubtless they'll be punished again and again.
1: And I think in particular older Australians, but all all Australians who have super, to some extent, will look at that and go, ooh, hang on, that's an acknowledgement that that's $30 billion that would have been in all of our pockets had it not been for that change. There's this incredible place where dreams are made. This is
0: MasterChef. MasterChef. This, this
1: is going to be the
0: best the best year yet. This is Insane on 10. Welcome back to The Prof and The Hack. So I think we can all agree, Peter Van Odselen, that uh, it wasn't a great 48 hours or so for Bill Shorten how damaging is that in the context of a uh, of a five-week campaign?
1: Oh, it's damaging if it has a momentum effect, really, more than anything. I mean, these moments happen. You know, there's always ups and downs. Even in campaigns that are well-dominated by one side versus the other, the successful side still has down moments. It's about what impact they have in there on the momentum that they face, I think. And so, you know, Bill Shorten, in the midst of his down moment, it feels worse than it probably is. Uh, Easter can't come quick enough for him. Hmm. You know, lay down your tools, no campaigning, we're all going to hit the churches. But he wants that break at the moment to recalibrate.
0: I think the thing which is interesting to me is that Bill Shorten has not, for all his years of being opposition leader, a reasonably high profile, and the profile that he had when Labor was in government particularly towards the end. I don't think people particularly get him and to the degree that they do, they don't particularly buy into him. So the messaging that the coalition is putting around, that Scott Morrison is putting quite effectively around him, is that he's he's tricky, he's a bit sneaky. And the, the damaging thing for Bill Shorten has been that he has essentially gifted uh, the coalition can, can support quick,
1: for that concept. Just a quick question. So... The person that's saying that Bill Shorten is tricky and sneaky is the bloke that put his arm around Malcolm Turnbull, Prime Minister, and said I'm ambitious for him a couple of days before
0: he, he had became job.
1: the Prime Minister. And <laughs> as I understand it, when he was in the midst of canvassing on the phone senior Liberals about what roles they would be interested in if it did come down to the need to change leaders and if Dutton was not going to be the one that some of them wanted to turn to, that's, that's the fellow, is it? That's, that's describing
0: Bill Shorten as... Who as allegedly had uh, five members of his own support group go and support the Dutton <laughs> vote <laughs> and to bring me, down Turnbull. And, and I'm, no defi- I'm not defending...
1: I'm saying they're as bad as each other. I'm not defending Bill Shorten here. That's the man who, you know, took out Kevin Rudd and then having done so played a lead hand in taking out Julia Gillard and, and has seemed to do remarkably well Um, despite having done that. And perhaps that comes to your point, though, to be fair. I think Scott Morrison is probably, and his campaign team rather than him, he's too busy jetting around the country, but the lines that he's been given and what the focus groups are showing them, I think is that, yes, Bill Shorten got away with taking out two prime ministers for a long time, but it sits in the back of people's minds and it perhaps feeds into this overall view that some people have that maybe he is a little bit sneaky or a little bit untrustworthy.
0: Blanche Dal Puget has a a great recollection that when, uh, on the day that uh, Bob Hawke took over from Bill Hayden in 1983, and uh, on the same day that Malcolm Fraser, trying to uh, subvert that very action, had gone to the Governor-General to call an election, uh, famously Bob Hawke turned up on ABC TV and was confronted by Richard Carlton, who asked him the question about how does he feel about having blood on his hands, and uh, famously... um, Bob Hawke is vibrating with fury at the impertinence of the question uh, you haven 't got any better, have you et etc but there 's real venom in it and, and and it revealed an element of bob hawke 's personality, which mm. was that visceral anger that he had as part of his he was a very popular figure, but he had that other element and that night, watching it on television, he was with Bob Hogg, who was the Victorian. Uh, Labor Party secretary at that stage, and Bob Hogg, who was sufficiently secure in the party to be able to say, speak truth to power to Bob Hawke, turned to him and said, if you go on like that, you can kiss your ass goodbye. Hmm. And Hawke took the message and calmed himself down. And I just was reminded of that when I looked at Shorten in those stuff-ups over two days and I thought, if you keep going like that, for the first time I thought... Bill Shorten could kiss his ass goodbye in this election campaign. Well, you see,
1: I, and I, I don't think that will happen. I, I think he'll regroup and I think he'll uh, hit the hustings and momentum will shift. And a lot of it could come down to the polls. I mean, this is tail wagging the dog stuff. But the last news poll was 52-48, so was the one before that. I understand they're looking at going weekly with news poll, which would mean there'll be another one straight after Easter, presumably on the Tuesday. If there is, they may not do one then because they would be polling over Easter. But if there is one then... Uh, you know, if, if fifty two forty eight becomes fifty one forty nine, it's margin of error stuff, but it has a big impact on momentum. If it blows out though, to fifty three forty seven, then all of a sudden, you know, all pe- that's pe- people say, "Who cares about what Shorten went through? He's a mile in front. He's going to be the next." It's period.
0: funny what happens in the margin of error, doesn't it? Everyone, everyone reads oh, yeah. so much into these polls. But, and but and It's the effect, though, isn't it? Yeah. It's,
1: it's the effect it has on the way people think and the way they campaign and the confidence. And you know, look, I, I think ultimately it's more likely than not that Bill Shorten wins. But as you say, if he ends up having to kiss his ass goodbye, he absolutely replaces John Houston as the fellow that lost the unlosable election. John Houston must be praying uh, for a Morrison <laughs> win other than he doesn't agree with him on climate change because he fades into the annals of history. He's no longer that guy that lost the unlosable. It becomes Bill Shorten.
0: Absolutely. Well, let's leave Bill Shorten aside just for one moment in terms of his stuff-ups, real or imagined... And look at the geographical question. Where have they been going, these two leaders? Because that reveals so much about what they're thinking. It does. And also very
1: stylistically different, the way that they've they've travelled. So I won't do it blow by blow, but it's been one week essentially that we're looking back on at this exact moment in time. In the first rough week of the campaign, they have gone from the east... Well, Let's start with Scott Morrison... He's spent more time in the locations he's gone to than Bill Shorten but travelled less. He's essentially, other than one day where he popped up to Brisbane, he's worked his way from Sydney to Melbourne to Tasmania uh, with a little bit of travel within, obviously. When in Melbourne he popped out to Geelong and when he was in Sydney he popped out to some of the outer suburbs. But he's essentially, with that one exception of a quick flight into Brisbane and back, he's worked his way from Sydney to Melbourne to Tasmania. In contrast to that, what Bill Shorten has done is he's started in Melbourne, he's popped up to Sydney, he's jetted across to South Australia, he's flown over to Perth and headed up to Darwin all before Easter, before heading back home for Easter. He hasn't been to Queensland at all, which is interesting because that's regarded as one of the key states. I, I suspect he's planning to spend a lot of time there later. They're two very different strategies. The argument coming from the Coalition is that they believe that it is a more effective form of campaigning to be seen to be in a particular state for a few days, two or three days, because then you really get more of the local media, more of the local press, more of the recognition of presence. The Labor view is you don't want the negative effect of being accused of not being somewhere for an extended period of time in that local media and you're better to be active and busy even if it's somewhat fleeting. So you've got two quite different strategies that are being deployed at the moment.
0: Interesting. And so interesting that there's been so little time spent in Queensland. I I guess that just signals that they both, far from them, not thinking Queensland's important. They think it is so important that they plan to get these other places dealt with early because the late stage of the campaign could well see them in Queensland. And a lot of
1: time is needed in Queensland, not just because it's a very big state, Um, both in terms of population but also particularly geographically. You know, it's got big population centres outside of Brisbane, Um, so the travel is enormous and you might as well try to do lots of it all at once. Uh, The Liberals, of course, have their campaign headquarters in Brisbane for a reason uh, because they know how important the state is. And Bill Shorten, even though he hasn't been there yet on the campaign trail, he has spent an inordinate amount of time in Queensland over the course of the last two and a half years. So they know it's important, but I think you're right. Uh, It's still surprising between the two of them there's just been one fleeting visit by the PM to Queensland at all, this campaign, and the rest of the time so far, one week in, uh, it's been ignored.
0: What do you think of George Christensen? A lot has emerged. He's sitting in a marginal seat. He's in a Queensland seat um, and he has uh, got himself caught up in, uh, you know, travel issues regarding his uh, very frequent trips to the Philippines, uh, the notion that taxpayers have coughed up for private travel, at least the domestic element of it. Um, he surely if you're sitting there at head office in the Liberal Party and the LNP, you'd be saying, you know, can we not be talking about George?
1: It's faceplant moments for them. Look, his seat is marginal. Uh, Dawson has been a swing seat. You know, Kevin Rudd picked it up uh, when he entered Parliament and then it was lost at the subsequent election that Julie Gillard fought in 2010 to George Christensen. Um, But it's a seat that the Labor Party would be hoping to pick up They'd be hoping to pick it up anyway but particularly now that George uh, Christensen is having the problems that he's having. He's had problems before in other spheres as well. So they have it as a target seat. It's not in a natural part of Queensland up in North Queensland around Mackay and so on that Labor would naturally be too hopeful to pick up but in the context of his missteps and him becoming, what what did Chris Bowen call him, the member for South Manila or something Mm. Um, with the amount of time he's spending abroad, that's a problem throwing, you know, the... the the accusations of misuse of travel entitlements, which will be independently verified at some point, uh, he's become a distraction. You know, what is it with these Queenslanders uh, being a distraction for the conservative side of politics? Peter Dutton insulting his disabled Labor candidate. George Christensen potentially misusing travel entitlements and spending more time abroad than in Parliament House during question time over the last three years. Uh, They're micro-distractions in key seats. Both of them hold seats that... Bill Shorten would be licking his lips to try and to pick and up. without
0: question that the the coalition has no hope if it starts losing seats in Queensland.
1: Oh, that's right. I mean they they need to hold the line in Queensland because they're going to lose a brace of seats in Victoria no matter what happens and they've got a seat or two in New South Wales it's hard to see them seen it's hard to see them doing anything other than losing. So they need to hold the line in Queensland, possibly pick up Herbert um, possibly pick up Lindsay in New South Wales. The reason that they've been hitting the hustings, the PM and his team down in Tasmania, is because they're hoping to do what John Howard did in Tasmania in 04, or indeed what Paul Keating did in Tasmania when John Hewson lost the unlosable election. And he went into that election only holding one of five seats, Paul Keating. And he came out of it holding four of five. The night was over faster than people actually realised. Yeah, and, and,
0: of course, Labor can't win anymore in Tasmania. They currently own the lot. They have the lot. Apart, and f-
1: apart from Andrew Wilkie's,
0: of course. That's true, yeah. yeah. Sorry,
1: they have four of the five and, and Wilkie would always vote with Labor anyway. So, you know, the, the government hopes that it can pick up one, possibly two, possibly three seats in Tasmania, even if they pick up one. That's a big win for them.
0: Hmm. Now, there are other players, of course. We've talked a little bit about GetUp and uh, its role uh, in this, but uh, and and the funny thing about GetUp is that these are the guys who are supposed to be representing the Australians who are most tuned in to politics, uh, the ones who care about it, who are vo- willing to volunteer to put up money, and yet there was the head of um, of GetUp, Paul Oosting, making rookie errors oh, wh- this week. I would hope a rookie did better than that. Because what he did, let's remind me, r- remind me what happened. It was it was really to do with Josh Friedenberg. He attacked
1: Josh Frydenberg in, in get-up literature that they were providing for their volunteers when handing out as being somebody who was part of a coup to remove Malcolm Turnbull. That's where it started. Then he had a radio interview with John Fain in Melbourne where it all just got worse from there. First up, on any rational, reasonable calculation of being part or not part of a coup against Malcolm Turnbull, Josh Frydenberg was not part of it. He voted with Turnbull till the end of days, he never came out and questioned Turnbull. He didn't even come out and say, there's momentum for a spill, let's get it done, even though I'm staying with Malcolm Turnbull. He stayed quiet and avoided all of that. He does not in any way, shape or form, deserve to be accused of being part of the coup against Malcolm Turnbull. In in
0: fact, one of the reasons why he became uh, deputy uh, leader of the party without it even going to a second ballot was because... Turnbull's team essentially saw him as an as an honest broker in that process. Exactly. And so, they put his votes back. So him. he
1: picked up the support. Of various groupings uh, and particularly those Turnbull ones that you mentioned and of course Greg Hunt was the deputy candidate who was the Dutton fellow and he picked up I think 13 votes or something like that. If it was that, a woeful effort. Mm. So so on that score it was a get up fail. Then he tried to defend that in an, this radio interview that we were talking about with John Fain and he and he started mucking everything up. He called him the deputy prime minister actually. He's the deputy liberal leader. The deputy liberal leader is not the deputy prime minister. That's always the national party leader in the coalition. Uh, and he had another mistake. He, when he, he called
0: him it. the finance minister. Minister. That's right. Him, and the finance. So he didn't even minister. know what portfolio he was holding. And then how could he pick finance?
1: You know, I mean, yes, Josh Frydenberg's the Treasurer, but you can't pick finance. Everybody knows Matthias Cormann's the finance minister. He's the only member of the Expenditure Review Committee who's the same person from when this government was elected back in
0: 2013. Yeah, and curiously, this won't matter to a lot, to, to most people, but it does show that GetUp, which, which are the kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the smarty-pants element of this whole thing, they're the guys who are supposed to know the real game, uh, have shown themselves to be... Uh, more witless than people might we, reasonably suppose. We would have
1: had a shorter segment on it, Hugh, if we would talked about the things he got right yeah. rather than the things he got wrong. Because let's add this into the mix. I have to say, if you're going to target, and I'm all for, if you're an environmental activist group such as GetUp, I'm all for targeting, you know, draconian dinosaurs of the Liberal Party amongst the conservative people who say that climate change is everything from absolute crap to not true. But that's not Josh Frydenberg. Why target Josh Frydenberg? He was the bloke who got rolled by his own side... When trying, as the Energy and Environment Minister, to introduce the National Energy Guarantee and to drag these knuckle dragging conservatives who don't believe in climate change to an outcome, yeah, a, 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 a
0: policy which has largely been picked yeah,
1: up by Labor. I mean, literally, if you get rid of Josh Frydenberg in the Liberal Parliamentary Party room, you get rid of something like fifty percent of the belief in climate change. <laughs> now that Malcolm Turnbull is no longer there, why would you target him? Why are you know, get up if they're going to be anything other than a, an organisation that? Can't seem to get their facts right. If there's one Liberal across the country that get up should actually say, you know what, this is the one Liberal we support as opposed to attack, it would have been Josh Frydenberg. But no, they're attacking him and they're doing it with their facts completely wrong to start with.
0: We'll see how far it goes when it comes to the vote. And the other mob, of course, who want to influence... Uh, Uh, the politics of the nation is the Institute of Public Affairs, memorably once called by uh, Mark Latham as the Institute of Paid Advocacy, uh, (laughs) before Mark Latham decided that he basically agreed with them on almost every point. And they've put out their uh, policies to fix Australia. Uh, Of course, it involves withdrawing from the Paris Climate Agreement, repealing Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act, where we all went there before, Uh, remove all references to race in the Constitution, implement a flat income tax. These are influential people, of course. They've got a number of their people are in parliament. Uh, The younger Downer is very keen to get into parliament and has also been previously with the IPA. Uh, The one that Andrew Lee, the Labor frontbencher, picked out as his favourite was uh, the requirement for a future government to hold a royal commission into the Bureau of Meteorology's tampering with temperature and climate data. Hmm. There is the scandal, the conspiracy theory we've been ignoring.
1: A bit bit conspiracy theory for my liking, but yes.
0: There's a bit of tin hat going on there, isn't
1: there? Well, certainly on that point there is. But look, I mean, look, some of the elements in there, there are, you know, conservative Australians that have strong views that agree with them on it, but the document that you're referring to from the IPA is dripping uh, as a piece of red meat to be thrown to their base, You know, they know that neither side of politics are likely to embrace huge chunks of it, but the IPA and their membership, they've got a particular ideological set uh, and they believe in a lot of that. Put the tin hat stuff to one side. Uh, You know, interesting debates, I think, around things like 18C and, and so on, but not debates, I think, that... A uh, front of mind for
0: most us. No, but they do have influence in the system and the flattening of the tax rate is very much part of the budget that was just handed down. That's true. So they're getting a fair way towards it. Uh, we could go on, but uh, time's up for now and you're a busy man, Peter Van Olsen. So are you. The Professor. Uh, I'm Hugh Remington, The Hack. Thanks for listening. More again in the next couple of days. have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.